Blood Brothers Podcast. Five Pillars Production. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh, my dear brothers, sisters, friends, and the foes out there. And welcome to another episode of the Blood Brothers Podcast with your host, Dili Hussein. Before I introduce today's celebrated and esteemed guest, I would like you all to subscribe to the Five Pillars YouTube channel. Like this video, share this video, leave a comment after you've finished watching it. And of course, for all the avid podcast listeners, you can find the Blood Brothers podcast on all the major platforms. Today's guest is the first guest where I have to have an actual bio in front of me to introduce, mashallah, tabarakallah. He is someone whose works I personally follow very attentively, especially because of the subject matter that we're going to talk about in today's podcast. Dr. Oemar Anjum is the Imam Khattab Endowed Chair of the Islamic Studies at the Department of Philosophy and Religious Studies at the University of Toledo. He obtained his PhD in Islamic Intellectual History in the Department of History, University of Wisconsin in Madison, and he is also the Editor-in-Chief of Yaqeen Institute. And these are just some of his accolades, alhamdulillah, and I am very honoured to have him on the show today. Dr. Oey Maranjum, Salaamu Alaikum, and welcome to the Blood Brothers Podcast. Alaikum Assalam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Thank you very much for having me. No, no, the, the honor is truly uh, all ours, alhamdulillah. Um, today's, today's discussion is essentially about all things related to the caliphate. And I guess I know that the vast majority, if not the entirety of your works where you've addressed this topic has been from an academic perspective. Whereas my exposure to this subject matter uh, has been entirely from an activist point of view. Uh, whether it be my exposure to various groups in the UK uh, who have discussed this topic or have made it the, the centre of their da'wah, or whatever it may be, and the works of those respective scholars which these groups associate themselves with. Let me first posit this to you. When you, as an academic, who have written, discussed this topic from a particular standpoint of academia, and then you see the various movements or the calls for it in its various forms. Um, how do you distinguish uh, between what you've learnt, what you've taught, what you've read, and what's happening on a grassroots level, mainly in the Muslim-majority world? Thank you very much again for having me. How do I distinguish between what I see and what's happening on, on the ground? Um, very good question. I see that, of course, since the um, disintegration of the Ottomans in late 19th century, but really early 20th century, um, Muslims always um, felt, have felt a, a gap and uh, numerous uh, groups have emerged to respond to this lack of unity and absence of a caliphate and have emphasized different things, sometimes in, as in the case of Muslim Brothers uh, they try to emphasize a, um, the, if you will, what they saw as the foundations of what is necessary before we get there. Um, and other groups, especially those who were most 
directly hit by the uh, loss of the Ottoman. So as you know that uh, after uh, the Ottoman Caliphate, a number of nation states emerged. At first these states are protected areas or co direct colonies of the British and the French. Uh, and this no, no, Known as mandates. British exactly. mandate, French mandate, yeah. Right, exactly. And these are, uh, this is known as the as British, uh, as Britain's moment in the Middle East. So this is when Britain has most power in the Middle East in its history, yet it is able to carve out these uh, various uh, colonies and these then become states after the Second World War. Um, but areas that did not get resolved, um, most importantly, Palestine, that is where a certain kind of intensity is seen in uh, remembering and trying to recover the caliphate. And perhaps in initially the intention of groups like Hizb al-Tahrir may have been really a short-term movement to immediately recover um, after what happened in 1948. And um, it, the intention may have been not to launch a long-term movement, but rather, you know, a more something like a, a movement or a coup almost to bring back the days of glory when the, at least the Arabs could, could unify. Um, so a movement like Hezbo Tahrir, for example, only because the, that goal was not achieved did they become popular and, and multinational movements. And, Hezbo, and Muslim Brothers' experience, Akhwan al-Muslimin's experience was similar in that as what they had hoped for, uh, as they realized more and more that the goal is farther and farther than, than they thought. Um, and of course there is you know, immense persecution and world history seems to be moving in the opposite direction than the one that uh, Muslims had hoped for. Mm -hmm. um, then the, these movements, if you will, willy-nilly uh, became what they became over time. So it's almost never that they planned for all of this to work out the way that it did. Um, so that all said, of course, all of these movements uh, are genuine expressions of Islam and of Muslims' concerns. And as such, we must learn from them, we must appreciate them. And those who do, fail to do so, those who say that, well, we're going to start over, um, you, you see them often making the same mistakes over and over. Mm. Um, so it's important <clears throat> to understand uh, what, what I mean by that, people who say, well, you know, these reformists and these people were changing Islam and we are the real champions of tradition, you know, five years later they're talking about exactly the same talking points because when, the, you know, if you will, rubber hits the road, they see the reality, they in fact borrow while also condemning from the same movements. So uh, I want to certainly emphasize that I do not intend to denigrate and, and merely criticize for the sake of criticism any of the groups. Um, now, I see that especially in the age of globalization starting somewhere in the 
70s and 80s, um, the Muslim world increasingly moved away from this idea of um, of re returning or recovering some kind of unity. Um, and movements like Hizb al-Tahrir were much more successful on the margins, on the frontiers, than in, uh, if you will, in the heartlands. But that, I think, has begun to change um, after, really, I, you could say that after 9-11, the engines uh, of a different world order have been mm -hmm. put in place. And I could say, in perhaps the briefest way, that uh, Samuel Huntington has won, Francis Fukuyama has lost, mm. which means that after the first financial shock of 2007 and 2008, um, you know, there were there are popular movements that have been uh, um, getting more and more intense and entrenched throughout uh, Euro-America, Australia, the white world, to recover a pre-immigration, pre-Muslim past. And so I think that the world is moving to a stage that I call deglobalization. Can you can you elaborate on what deglobalization means? How you envisage what that means? All right. So I guess for that we have to say a little bit about globalization. So what happens in the um, and before <clears throat> globalization starts in nineteen eighties or late seventies, there is um, the Cold War, and in the Cold War uh, there are two parts of the world, right? Two. Uh, rivals, U.S. and U.S.S.R., yep. and then their yep. proxies. But uh, both powers are unified in one thing that they do not want. Certainly, the, the United States and the United Nations established for that reason is that we do not want a third world war. And for that, we want to ensure that these popular movements, populist movements uh, that led to things like Nazism and fascism will not take root again in these poor countries that will give us trouble again. So the economic model for the world, but also in the, um, in the central countries as well, uh, in Europe and America and, or the global north, was one of managed capitalism. Whereas in the late 70s and then <clears throat> with President Reagan and Margaret Thatcher, moved to what is called neoliberal policies. And neoliberalism meant that uh, instead of uh, politics and countries being important, now it is businesses that are important. When I say important, important from the perspective of who the whom the global institutions are going to support. IMF and World Bank and so on, you know, so if you, the 70s and 80s, there, there were, in all these third world countries, there were five-year development plans because governments were getting money and then they had the power. And who had then government power, state power, really mattered. They actually shaped the culture and economy and direction of the country to a large extent. Um, this is also the era in which Islamic movements took a, an increasingly statist form. 
meaning that they realize that capturing the state is important and you can take the country in different directions. Politics is important. In the era of globalization, starting again early, uh, you know, late 70s, 80s, um, the global elite uh, decide, based on a number of economic or perceived failures, that you know there is a need for a, a different order, and um, this neoclassical, neoliberal order is, is put into place, which has, which also called Washington Consensus. The idea is that mm. you're <clears throat> going to. Um, There, there'll be no tariffs, you know, global trade should be completely fluent and equal. You cannot somehow, you cannot, governments cannot privilege their uh, corporations and companies and businesses and economies that are local. Uh, you have to compete globally. Now, this globalization is what then leads to a number of major conflicts in the Muslim world, but also um, much more rapid moving of of capital and and peoples around the world, as a result of which a large number of immigrants also come to the West. Uh, this, of course, has been happening even before starting 60s and 70s, but certainly in the 80s and 90s, this isn't this intensifies. So globalization um, is defined as in the textbooks as intensification of of trade and social networks. But it also, uh, its engine was economic, but the results are often cultural and social and political, right? One could say that political, politically disempowering the third world country elite may not have been the main purpose of these changes, but that happened. Now, what that meant is that for Islamic movements, that they became global and that is why, you know, you hear the call about the caliphate in Chicago and in London rather than, you know, where you hope for the caliphate uh, in the Muslim world. But it's also meant that politics meant a little less and less now in the Muslim world because, um, you know, if your economy is in the hands of a, a few multinational corporations who employ tens of thousands of your upper middle class and middle class and of course they're stuffing the pockets of those in power because these are corrupt governments crony sure. capitalism is very easy so basically everywhere in the arab world and in the muslim world illa mashallah crony capitalism uh, you know becomes well established there are few millionaires and billionaires and the rest uh, suffer greatly this is happening, of course, in the Muslim world, it's happening in India, it's happening elsewhere. Another, I guess, important note here is that there are certain countries, very few, that are well-placed at this time to benefit from globalization. Again, I'm talking 80s and 90s still, before most of your audience are born. What happens in this time is that almost everyone loses, including the very um, global north, the very powers that had mm. put uh, this in place because this was big capitalists against small capitalists and small capitalists lose, the society loses because you begin to now maximize profit by, you know, sending jobs, um, uh, you know, uh, overseas and so on. So 
The Which countries benefit then? The Which only countries that benefit from it that were those that happened to have large economies and good infrastructure built up by this time. And China, of course, is number one. Uh, and to some degree, India as well. Uh, these were countries, not that they were good countries. They, in fact, had engaged in, especially China, in effectively a genocide and um, major massive uh, killings of entire class of people. And they were there was no um, uh, um, tradition of rule of law or, or accountability of government. But they, China does have a long-standing, thousands of years old uh, tradition of a strong state, strong central power, which mm. the Muslim world doesn't have, which the Middle East doesn't have. Of course, it was in Turkey, in, in Istanbul, for hundreds of years for, in the Middle East. Uh, but this meant that you have certain players that are well placed to take advantage of globalization, and China did, and right, in, in, in India. Then we, we see the result of uh, these movements in places like India, which is rise of, um, of fascist Hindu nationalism, which has, uh, which is reacting against this accumulation of wealth in a few hands, but also using it to its own power. Now, what, what, where does this leave Muslims? Muslims were the worst placed to take advantage of globalization. Um, what ended up happening in the Muslim world is that, of course, they are divided. And so these divisions are extremely important if you, if, in, in being able to, um, well, in, in losing all these opportunities, right? Because what happens would, is... Would, would you say, sorry to interject, Ustad, uh, would you say the Khaliji states, the oil-rich petrol states, that they were also at a disadvantage? Well, so they use their advantage to their uh, greatly, um, as did other despotic regimes. But really, what is happening is that uh, the Middle East the Gulf is an exception because there it's not there's no trade. It's really their rent, rent rentier states. Um, so there, you didn't want either democracy or much free capitalism. Although capitalism also is expanding there, but elsewhere. In the Muslim world, you have the same tradition, same in, in trend of um, increasing uh, power of multinationals and global economy, and then therefore political elite become leeches on this trade. And so they don't become less important in that they're still, uh, you know, causing havoc. But they become less important that if they want to do something, they don't have much power. The only powers they have really is how much money they're going to make off this trade that is going on. So if you are somebody like Mubarak, right, then you have a few billionaires in Egypt, like, you know, uh, the question is how much you're going to take off it. But culture is getting out of your hand. And that is what we see in 2011, the Arab Spring that this neoliberal ideas um, and, and, and this and globalization leads to the spread of new ideals of what we need as well, that people are interacting, young, whole young generation is interacting with the world and seeing that this kind of oppression is unreal and unsustainable. Um, and um, so this is uh, reaction against these neoliberal policies and great inequalities that are economic in nature, but also there's all, all kind of cultural effect 
Um, so this is sort of the background information that hopefully will allow us to uh, both, you know, engage with this question in a more realistic way than we, we typically <clears throat> tend to. So what Inshallah. is deglobalization? Well, in, in 2008, breaks are hit. Uh, everybody knows, or most people know what, what happens, but basically um, global trade takes a hit and um, people, uh, th there is a reaction against globalism, global econ economy, um, and the culture of globalism. And one of the things that everybody is seeing in plain sight because of internet and media and t t TV and whatnot, is that there is a global elite that is emerging that is rich and powerful everywhere. So billionaires in the world, the top 1% of the world, if we go to India, you go to Pakistan, I don't know if there are many in Pakistan, if you go to um, Egypt, you go to Saudi, they belong to the same culture, right? They, they buy same kind of yachts, they do same kinds of activities, they meet in the same kinds of, you know, devos and whatnot. And then everywhere, right, there is great inequality. The inequality and oppression is much greater in the third world, in the peripheral countries, but because there are no institutions preventing it. Um, so this, th there is a reaction against globalist culture, right? So as a result, there is a move toward back to civilization, right? So that's the interesting part that you come from nation states, but now the move back is not back to nation states, but to civilizations. Give you an example. The terrorist who shot up the masjid in New Zealand was an Australian who had spent much of his time in Europe and America. And um, in his manifesto, which I teach in my seminars, um, he talks about, you know, his image and view, vision of the world was to get to start a civil war in America because it's too integrated, there's no way to go back there. But in Europe, you can get the Muslims back out there, right? And Australia is too integrated. New Zealand was shot up because it provides a threatening example of integration. So you have a global white Christian population, right? That's the, his imagination, even though the person who did it, right? He says he's not a Christian or not mm -hmm. sure about it, but it is a Christian civilization, Christian Europe that he wants to go back to. And of course, you're, the United States and Australia are considered part of it. Absolutely. So it's not, it's, not, it's not like First World War, or Second World War, nation nationalism. This is something dif different. And this is exactly, I think, what um, Huntington had predicted. Uh, uh, to some degree, he was talking about other countries, but really it, it happened among the, the rich white. Um, so this is the idea is that just as uh, China is emerging as a civilizational state, not just a nation state. Uh, India is thought, being thought of as a civilization, not just a nation. And we can talk about the difference if you want. And so my point is that um, as these new changes are uh, taking place, Muslims, Muslim leadership, intellectual and political leadership ought to think about 
where we're going next. Right. When you when you mention civilizational states, which aren't just nation states, would you describe? Are there any prospective civilizational states, or that at least showing some kind of uh, indication towards that direction from the Muslim majority world? Indication? I don't As know. I mean, so I, I obviously m Muslim countries, the Middle East. Um, particularly was ruled by the Ottomans for several centuries, for, you know, four or five centuries. And um, so that's a very sort of natural uh, imagination, right? It's only 100 years old and very easy to think about going back to uh, something like uh, an Ottoman regime, even if the government may not be Ottoman or whatever. But the idea of integration of these regions is still in people's memories. You can find it in photographs and, and stories, right? So it's, it's a cultural memory. And cultural yeah. memories are extremely important. Um, and of course, for Muslims now in South Asia, Pakistan and, and Malaysia and, and Iran, uh, they were not part of this, uh, this connection. But nonetheless, um, you find that uh, uh, there is quite a bit of movement even there to, in fact, they're taking, these countries are taking lead um, in creating some kind of corporation, uh, cooperative uh, initiatives. I don't know how far they're going to go, mm. but uh, of course there is this kind of, Im in this imagination of uni unity. So even Saudis, for example, uh, put together this army of 23 some countries led by a Pakistani general, um, mm. which um, I think that, uh, well, I mean, what's interesting is Iran, I think, is not part of it. It is being thought of as a Sunni coalition to fight terrorism. Um, so it's Sunni coalition against the Sunni terrorists, perhaps, and Shia, Shia terrorists and Shiism and whatnot. I, I don't know. But the point is that even the idea of a military unification is not off the table. It's not that, you know, we cannot imagine that something like this could happen, uh, but it is done cynically. It's done by, uh, you know, people who uh, uh, just want to hold on to their power. Yeah. There's so much that you've said in your opening segment, Ustad, that I, I, I need to nitpick some of them. I need to try sure. and pick some of them. You, you said... <clears throat> Uh, Samuel P. Huntingdon won and Fukuyama lost. Now, when you said Fukuyama lost, this is uh, the thinker who said that we have reached uh, the end of history. Man yeah. has reached end of history. That uh, the nation state, uh, the liberal democracy, is the pinnacle of governance. In short, that's in essence what he was saying. Um, why do you believe that he has lost? The nation state is, uh, I mean, one could argue the nation state is looking as strong as ever. Uh, with 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 no other real meaningful alternative beyond romanticized or cultural memories or thinking, the nation state is going as strong as it's going. Now, I'm not saying that nation states are synonymous with liberal democracies, but in terms of any kind of viable alternative, it can be argued that uh, Fukuyama, his 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 his, it looked for a moment during the Arab Spring, it even looked. Uh, irrespective of what we think of the criminal organization known as ISIS or Daesh, that it seemed for a moment that perhaps Fukuyama's 
uh, hypotheses was going to be smashed apart. But the nation state and the 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 public uh, desire for democracy, whatever it may mean in the West or in the Muslim majority world, that desire is still very much present and strong. So would it be would it, would it be accurate to say that Fukuyama and his hypothesis and his conclusion was wrong or he had failed? Right. I think those the observations you make are, uh, let's say, I, I grant them. But um, I mean, Fukuyama himself, if you look at his recent books, he is talking uh, about he, how he has to curtail his thesis because he realizes that there is tribal, the rise of tribalism everywhere in the world. Um, so that's not much of a... Uh, much of but a when problem. You said, but when you said he... So when you said so, earlier on, you said Fukuyama has failed and Huntington has won. Right. When you said he has failed, was I correct in understanding that your reference was to the end of history? Yes, exactly. Okay. Right. So I think that the idea that liberal democracy is going to work for everybody has failed. I, that, that I have no doubt about. And the reason is that the environmental crisis has made it very clear to people, um, to scientists and people who would pay attention to science, right, at least even, even cynically for their own advantage, that uh, liberal democracy requires a level of consumerism that if it really spreads to poorer regions of the world, there is really going to be suicidal uh, tendencies in the world because you have, um, you do not have the, the resources to feed uh, all the mouths in the way and, and have the kind of waste that is produced and the kind of energy that is produced. You have uh, in 50 to 70 years, some billion people in the world are going to lose their uh, houses, lose their, uh, and it's, it so happens that many of those regions are Egypt, Karachi, Bangladesh, and Indonesia are Muslim. Um, so, and then as a result of that, there you have the immigration crises and political uh, wars and sort of, eco, eco, uh, you know, environment, environmental wars that are everybody's anticipating and they're beginning to happen. So uh, I don't think that any serious person should would would even come back and say, oh, no, Fukuyama has one. One could say that we still can try to sustain liberal democracy, but uh, in ways that some leftist envision, you know, leftist philosophers envision in different ways. But really, the way that he imagined it certainly is gone. The question now: Has Huntington won? First of all, I am not endorsing Huntington. He was not a. You know, he had a mean streak. Uh, meaning Absolutely. that he, yeah. he really imagined clash as necessary, and he wanted uh, Islam, the sign of the Islamic and China civilizations, to be at war so that they leave the West alone. So he couldn't really imagine a world where civilizations could coexist. Um, but in terms of, I think, his powers of observation, uh, I think that they have uh, proven true in that. Uh, this was his basic idea that these economic yeah. ideologies um, that people adopt, you know, whether they're with capitalism or they're with in, with socialism, this is what's going on in the world that he's studying in the 70s and 80s and 90s. And he made the observation is that this is superficial, that there is something deeper. You know, to put in one sentence, he said, culture is deeper than ideology. 
So ideology, economic ideologies are going to come and go. And when things don't work out, people are going to revert to their, to their culture, to their civilization. Now, he did not say that culture and civilization don't change. So people, you know, uh, this is, a, of course, thing that happens in academia, that crit criticism of popular thesis is good, and especially because of the way that, uh, you know, what he was pointing to, a kind of very anti-globalist spirit, uh, very easy, it was easy to criticize him. But policy circles still took him very seriously, and um, it may have been just a self-fulfilling prophecy. Be that as it may, he was right that, yes, he may not be, have been able to define civilization very well, but he was right that ideologies are superficial. These nationalist ideologies or, you know, whether we're going to be with U.S. or USSR and, you know, uh, the Arabs were all Arab nationalists and, and then there is this uh, Arab socialism. All of that was very superficial. What he said is that there's something deeper that's going to stay. Um, and that, I think, is absolutely true. I agree with you. Definitely. Um, could that then be argued? So, you know, the failure. So if you look at the 60s, the 70s, and perhaps uh, the beginning of the 80s, when we look at the rise of Gamal Abdul Nasser, uh, the attempts at the unification of the Arab world, uh, the rise of Baathism and, and these kind of things, it was arguably short-lived. Um, would you say that that is a testimony to what Huntington saw as in the short-lived nature of ideologies and something deeper like culture or whatever that entails would actually last longer than these ideologies? Yes, very much so. When you also said at the beginning at, the, at your opening segment, uh, you said that there were obviously groups that were born out of this kind of post-Ottoman period. Uh, you mentioned Ikhwan al-Muslimin, you mentioned Hizb al-Tahrir. Um, the two groups that generally tend to be referred commonly, there's others as well, of course. I mean, there's even the... the, the book. Where, do, where do you place uh, what's commonly known or referred to as, I don't like this term, um, I don't know what the alternative term is, um, the Salafi Jihadi movement. Where do you fit that thinking in the spectrum of the two other groups that you mentioned? Um, I mean, I guess I'm referring to perhaps the thinking of Abdullah Azam uh, and others and prominent thinkers. Where, where do you think they fit into uh, the goals and objectives of trying to bring the Muslim majority world back to something which uh, Huntington was, would say is deeper and more long lasting than economic ideologies? So Salafi Jihadism is a label for a number of different things, right? I don't think it's a good... Uh, so it, it apl applies in some cases, doesn't apply in other cases. So uh, Abdullah Azam, I don't know, you know, if you can really... He's more of a classical jihadism with some modifications. Yeah. Um, and uh, he is fighting in Afghanistan, which was the kosher war, right? Which was where the United States completely supported the Mujahideen. Um, and but one thing we should remember, by the way, going back to the Cold War before the globalization era, um, the United States actively supported um, the rise of Islam as a political power. Not that the United States was the cause of it, and it's very, very clear that's not the case. Rather, you know, you support a horse that you know you think is going to win. 
but what you what they were against is the left these the soviet influence right Start, so, if i if i if i may you're basically referring to just for just on, on on a simple term basically what you're referring to perhaps the pitting of what they what the western america namely saw as a threat in arab socialism the left communist ussr so in that regard it was better strategically at that time to back the kind of islamic alternative be it the monarchies yeah. of the of the gulf or the resistance in afghanistan is that what you're basically referring to here exactly there is an interesting memo um or a letter that is sent by carter administration i believe to prince uh to king of jordan uh, where it says that we see the rise of jihad and and uh, this Islam as really a positive, uh, you know, as a positive development. We we see something like development of a muscular Islam or uh, Arabs. That's a good thing, right? Because the idea is that the, the the problem is a PLO, and against a PLO, you want to back Hamas. Um, similarly. Uh, in the and again, I don't want to read all of this as some kind of nefarious that you know the, all of, that this was uh, a conspiracy. That oh, not at all. But it's important to see that there are all kinds of um, uh, you know opportunities and cracks in world among in, in the world elite in world uh, uh, um, you know uh, struggles that are that are part of sort of human uh, history and power struggles and, and their opportunities that emerge, right? And very, in early Islam, in, in fact, Muslims, when uh, the, the Prophet and the Sahaba, um, السلام, uh, when they fought, they, they took advantage of such an opportunity, really, between the, the Persians and the, and the, and the Romans. Um, the problem is that, of course, people today uh, often have no sense of agency. They see these developments. Everything is a part of a prefabricated conspiracy. Everybody, you know, uh, the assumption is they all know everything. But that's not the case, right? The United States has been bungling uh, the Middle East for from the very beginning of its involvement in the, in the Cold War. Uh, the United States saw the Middle East and the Muslim world really as a chessboard for this fight against communism. And um, only really for the first time, the, um, uh, the Islamic world at, as such came to the attention of these geopoliticians as a threat in 1979. After Iran's revolution, Iran, right, and and then Egypt, um, the Sadat assassination, but there and then uh, you know in the nineties, um, um, and then uh, finally in two thousand and one and nine eleven, so that those are the moments when this chain, this view and the relationship between the the West and and the Islamic world takes a turn. Um, and now I think to some degree it's going back because uh, the Saudis and the Arabs are seen as completely, in any global struggle, they could be used as pawns for, the, for, American, um, for American strategy. Um, so I want to get back to the earlier questions now with some of the perhaps boring background stuff out of the way on the question of the caliphate itself and uh, why I 
forefront this information, this these narratives, political and cultural and and economic narratives, is because Muslims tend to think, especially activists who very sincerely think about wanting to bring back the caliphate, and that could be done simply by going back to the model of the Prophet there is certainly a, a, an element of truth in that, but they don't often understand the model of the Prophet himself, that how he did in fact understand the politics of his time, that he did understand act in a way that was political, contingent, responding to, taking advantage of opportunities. He didn't have a plan that, you know, three years I'm going to do this, seven years I'm going to do that, and then there's going to be real serious, severe persecution, and then I'm going to do this, and then I'm going to migrate to Medina, and then in Medina I'm going to have, you know, uh, this struggle. This this is not how uh, real-world struggles work. Um, now, of course, Rasulullah he dealt with a multi-complex of issues, right? Exactly. Some of which, a lot of which he did not anticipate, some of which when that opportunity arose, he dealt with it as it came. Right. Um, so, so you're definitely right in that regard And it's actually interesting because I want to refer to two articles that you've written One was in 2019 when you wrote Who wants a caliphate? Right. What inspired What What was the thing in, in Yaqeen Institute The link will be on the screen What led you to write this piece In 2019 Who wants a caliphate? Do you want a caliphate? Absolutely, yes And um, how does this calif- how, how does Dr. Oweymar Anjum See this caliphate in his mind? How do you see such a institution or polity? How, how do I see? In, how do I see it emerging, or how do I see it functioning? Those are two different things. Both, both, both. Okay. How do you see it like a like a, a confederate a confederation of Muslim majority nation states with one overarching leader? Do you see it as a very centralized, uh, widespread uh, superpower, a modern empire with one ruler? How do you see it? So I think that's all up for grabs. Mm. And the reason is that I, this is my personal uh, style of thinking, uh, that I, um, and this is sort of connects to what we were talking about, the Prophet ﷺ. The kind of uh, history that emerged, right? Of course, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had, um, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has foreknowledge of everything and it was Allah's plan. And the surah, surah of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam uh, is absolutely, uh, absolutely the model uh, for the uh, entirety of Islamic history to understand that you look at the seerah. Um, and this was a case even with the Sahaba later in during the fitan and whatnot. They would look at the Prophet's seerah and, and try to emulate his actions. Um, so doing so is by all means, a, an important thing to do, right? Which is what my next article is about, the, the question of the constitution of Medina. Medina. Yeah. But um, there were important thinkers. Um, I'll name one that I have great respect for, Dr. Isra Ahmed, who, uh, you know, there were pamphlets um, when I was growing up um, about how there's going to be three years of secret struggle and then passive, you know, there's passive struggle and active struggle and there's going to be jihad and you had even years figured out of how many it's, how many it's going to take. Um, so that kind of uh, boxing of sirah, uh, you know, 
that that is a that's a great error of Yitzhihad by some great scholars who are better than me. And um, the same goes continues, the same mentality continues until today among some very good uh, otherwise uh, groups and movements and thinkers. Uh, this includes some of my own uh, friends who would help, uh, who would uh, 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 who would endorse the idea of the caliphate, but they see that <clears throat> as, as a as a struggle that is disconnected from a couple of things. It's disconnected from world history. It's disconnected from a scholarship of the ulama, and it's disconnected from the scholarship of Islamic studies and new historical developments and knowledge that we have today. So it is as if none of that knowledge and none of the developments of world history have anything to teach us about how we're going to do this. That we already... And, and, and who is at the fault of them? I mean, I mean, it, 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 I mean, when I have spoken to various senior activists and, and you know, I've engaged some of them in my previous years, one of the arguments is positive that, well, this is a situation in Islamic history which we've not really faced or had before. Okay, fine, okay, we're in 1258, the Mongols sacked Baghdad, the Mamluks did a comeback in 1261. Okay, for our history, there was never this kind of very romanticized, centralized um, state that's known as a caliphate. Yes, there were periods that Umayyads had their time, the Abbasids had their time, the Ottomans had their time, there were some others who made the claimage. But right now, we're living at a time which the Ummah has not really experienced such a thing in the past. So it is a time for Ijtihad. And so therefore, if the... Ulama or the Mashaykh or, or the thinkers of Ikhwan al-Muslimin or Hizb al-Tahrir or any of those who come from various other groups Why criticize, I'm not saying that any of you or anyone else has done that But the, I guess the point I'm trying to make is They would argue that we're trying to deal with a new reality here We're, 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 we're trying to deal with a reality which is not being addressed by the traditional scholars Those who have seem to have made their lives very comfortable with the nation state model that they don't want to be thinking outside of that box um, what would your thoughts be on that so i'd say two wrongs don't make one right um, right they just make more and more wrongs and then it's more and more difficult to untangle them later but my so i don't mean to be smart aleck here but the point is that it it, it is that um the idea that the ulama have given up on the ummah, right? It's 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 clearly not true. Of course, the ulama are various groups because ulama is not the name of a political party or or, or some kind of organization. Um, and there are ulama who are investigating uh, various things, such as the fiqh of. The, in fact, in the twentieth century, there is a, there is a great flowering of. Islamic jurisprudence that is it doesn't fit in the model of reformist or traditionalist but there are ulama and fuqaha who really ask the question of what would an Islamic order look like today um, and that knowledge is not being attended to as much as it, it ought to be but that's not my main point here my main point is that um, the ulama are various groups and you cannot have success in this ummah without the ilm of uh, of of uh, of uh, Rasulullah's deen and his ummah and his own his style and his sunnah uh, and his aqidah. So all of those things you cannot you know you cannot uh, 
compartmentalize them and say, well, you know, none of this knowledge has anything to do with what I'm going to do. The second thing that I want to point out that I think in your question was assumed is that this is an entirely unprecedented situation. Well, any situation is unprecedented, right? Any new era is unprecedented. I mean, the Ottoman was in some way unprecedented. But, um, you know, if you lived in the uh, really, uh, in the stateless societies of this, there were six centuries after the decline of the Abbasids when there were warring kingdoms and city-states and petties, uh, petty princelets uh, throughout the, Arab, the Muslim world where, you know, which is when, you know, a bunch, a ragtag of army of crusaders could walk through the Muslim world and take the third holiest shrine, the Jerusalem. And then when the Mongols came, Muslims were completely unprepared. And so, and they were about some six centuries until the rise of the Ottomans and the Safwids and the Mughals, when you had these uh, relatively small uh, kingdoms. And if at that time somebody said, you know, that Muslims are going to be the most important power in, in Europe and Asia, again, you'd have said, well, yeah, that's, that's really romantic. Look, look at what's happening. When the Mongols came, right, the 13th, 14th centuries, if you just look at 13th, 14th century writings of Muslims, very, very different there. There is a clear sense in the 13th, 14th, early 15th century writings are uh, the great scholarly production at this time. But in the, in the Mamluk uh, realm of Isir and Egypt, this is where, of course, most of the great scholarship that we have today comes from, conservative scholarship, but nonetheless. Uh, but this was also a period in which Muslims, Sunnis, Muslims particularly felt that uh, they are on the edge that the Islam is going to be eliminated um, because they're the Mongols from the East and the Crusaders from the uh, West are both in fact uh, colluding in taking over the last stronghold of Islam. Um, this is the era of Ibn Taymiyyah and that's Ibn why Taymiyyah. some of his writings are um, yeah, very important in, in that they capture this moment. And the point is that, uh, and then you have the Ottoman Empire which lasts for five, six centuries and is a story of, uh, really for first four centuries, story of one success after another. Um, and this is a very, very long time for there to be such prosperity and stability. It was not a perfect empire, right? It was, but, but um, in terms of world powers, um, it was a time that couldn't have been imagined. Right? You didn't think that so imagine that Constantinople was not conquered in time of Sahaba mm. and Al-Hassan and Al-Hussein uh, and Ibn Umar and Abdullah ibn Zubayr had been part of the army of Yazid. I'm not sure about Al-Hassan, but the rest of them certainly were. of army of Yazid that attacked uh, Constantinople. Constantinople, yep. All of these people, Sahaba of the highest caliber, and they couldn't take it. And imagine if somebody said that you're going to take it in 1453. Um, That's true. Right? So a thousand years later, you're going to take it. And, and so my point is that often we read history as having this kind of, first of all, it's a black and white, right? It's a cartoon. And second, 
it has this it, it seems to already have these prefabricated lessons um, that um, you know uh, that either people think well the things were all great until now or the things were in fact really terrible until now but you have instead what you see in history and this is the reason why I'm writing and ta I, I take to history very seriously and writing about it and teach about it is because um, it really shows you that Muslims in the past haven't been sleeping they have been doing what we're doing in different circumstances and they have not been failing so the great successes that you see in history whether it's a rise of the madhahib and the great and the, the great and, and the most brilliant fiqh that we have today um, the hadith sciences for example they were historical they didn't exist on the prophet or the sahaba or the the tabi'in even right they they emerged later because somebody said this isn't okay we're going to do something about it um, in fact uh, Richard uh, um, um, Bullet I forget his first name Richard Bullet um, at Columbia uh, he has really interesting uh, essay where he talks about these um, uh, phases in history in Islamic history that you know right now it's going through a terrible time but uh, he gives all of these examples that there is this um, moments. I I don't forget. Uh, I forget the pair of words that he uses. That there is expansion. No, there there is. So there is crisis and then resolution of those crises in Islamic history that have been happening in mm -hmm. different periods. So and you could say that you know hadith and fiqh happened in the second third centuries, right? The, the their height, yep. um, and then there was decline and height again, right? Historical sciences, by the way, historical consciousness saw its height in the 14th, 15th centuries of common era. So uh, at the time of Ibn Taymiyyah and Ibn Hajar, right, around that time, uh, Ibn Khaldun. Um, so if, if you want to understand how Muslims understood history and uh, the, the, the most interesting and creative time was around this time, right, when you think there was the Muslim Dark Ages. But... Uh, when you look at the political organization, you could say that what the Ottomans was doing uh, was one of those high points. Um, and so I don't think, so when you think of this as, you know, there is a, you were winning, 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 and then all of a sudden, 1924, you lost, then uh, you're like, okay, well, how can you ever go back? Because you're just going down. And there's no coming back. But if you think of Islamic history as, you know, people Ups have been dance. winning and losing, winning and losing. Um, I mean, for example, uh, the era of Al-Ghazali, politically speaking, was one of the lowest points. Uh, whereas his own teacher, Al-Juwaini, who was serving Nizam al-Mulk, one of the most brilliant viziers that the Islamic world has ever seen, he saw possibilities and optimism. So that was a very quick turn turnaround and then uh, the Crusaders came and Imam al-Ghazali has nothing to say about them um, and uh, they walked through the Islamic world and there is right Muslims are fighting each other and Muslims in fact were supporting were, were almost colluding with the Crusaders against other Muslims um, and then you had the rise of Salahuddin and uh, Nur al-Din Zengi and so on so with the, Ustad, let me just ask you something then. So, so, so with those various historical ups and downs, right? Granted, I think it would be a huge mistake for any Muslim, and even when I have the pleasure of addressing 
university ISOC. So I always say, look, brothers and sisters, Islamic history is not a romanticized utopian history. We need to move away from this because, wallahi, you're going to fall into big trouble when someone just has a cursory reading of what was happening in the Muslim majority world throughout the entirety of 13, 14 centuries. It would be a colossal mistake to present Islamic history and Islamic civilization as hunky-dory and the only thing you're going to highlight is the sacking of Baghdad in 1924. You're in trouble if you're going to present our history and our civilization as such. However, what I would want to ask you is, is it a fair comparison to compare the state of the Ummah today with 57 plus Muslim majority secular nation states um, with military bases, US and British, but many US military bases scattered within many of these countries? The way we are economically enslaved to powers outside of the Muslim world. Are you saying that there has been situations like this? Because right now the Ummah's question, I mean, I guess one of the reasons why people go towards romanticism is because it, it makes you feel good in a very dark and you know depressing time where, the, where humiliation, oppression seems so widespread. That a bit of romanticism helps, a bit of Dirilish Ertrul helps, a bit of Paytat Abdul Hamid helps, a bit of thinking back of, of Muhammad bin Qasim helps, and Tariq bin Ziyad helps. These things help. If you think, thinking back to these romanticized notions of these great figures who took Islam to great lengths, and then, or, or, or like Salahuddin Ayyubi or um, Saif Qutus, these things help. Is the Ummah to blame to want to go back to romanticized readings of history? So I don't really see that as romanticized necessarily. I think that there are good and bad readings, uh, but human beings cannot live without dreams. And you cannot achieve great things without dreams. And I think of visions and dreams as a rather positive thing Right. The opposite of dreams is not uh, of good dreams is not that you become you, you cannot the imagination even of a nation is just an imagination. Right. It's um, it's just that how much agency you put into this. Um, and I think that one of the things you asked me about this uh, question of why I wrote the article, I guess, it's time that I answer that question. Uh, I wrote this article because I was <clears throat> in Tahrir Square in 2011 interviewing the leadership and the Shabab when after uh, Hassan Mubarak had stepped down and I saw Egypt as alive. I saw Egypt as just a very different kind of country than one I had visited earlier two times before. Um, and honestly, I saw Egyptians are really uh, so deeply oppressed that I cried for them. Uh, 2011 was the Egypt that I could rejoice about and I could talk to people. Everybody had a political opinion. I saw Egyptians as alive. Yet when I talked to their leadership about what was wrong, I felt, and I gave a talk about this when I came back, was basically uh, was a letdown. Uh, that I did not think this was going anywhere because there is no vision, there is no understanding of the world politics, the world economics, there is no alternative. Um, and people thought that, uh, you know, the problem was Hussein Mubarak. The problem was one guy who was bad and next time we're going to have a better guy. Right. Um, so I felt that 
um, this was a mo moment. So basically, this takes me back to my understanding of how change is more likely to happen, given in this this uh, uh, attention to history and to contemporary uh, social sciences, political science of how revolutions and social changes happen. Um, so my one thing that I'm going to emphasize again and again to Islamic movements who are interested in re-establishing the caliphate is knowledge is not your enemy, it's your friend. Whether it's knowledge of history or knowledge of contemporary social and political sciences, don't convince yourself that all of this knowledge is being produced by your enemy. That's because often because you're being secretly lazy uh, or because perhaps you misunderstand what knowledge is about, that in fact this history is going to be extremely important uh, going forward. So going back now, um, in uh, Tahrir Square, when I'm talking to people, I realize that these people's understanding of what's going on in the world is extremely uh, impoverished. And this leads me several years to think about how to change that discourse. And I think of change as not I, not either uh, bottom-up, grassroots only, or top-down. Like those are the topic, typical models that are presented. Right? So Hezb al-Tahrir had this model. They're going to write letters to generals, military generals, who are going to come take over, and that's how Khilafah will be established, whereas the Muslim brothers have this model that they're going to educate, they're going to work on the society, and then the society is going to um, choose better leaders, and these leaders will at some point want to perhaps move toward fundamental structural changes. The assumption is that... Um, uh, there is a third. The so, third is that you, the third is to fight and remove. There is that third option as well, which is uh, which I've heard, which is more okay. It's well, a bit it's more newer. like the first one because really it's ultimate. I mean, you could say uh, the ISIS, Daesh is, is another model, which is that you go Daesh, Al Qaeda, whoever it may be, is violence. to fight the the, the Tawahid or the, right. these illegitimate regimes. The right. armies can't be trusted. Right. You need to physically move these guys to establish right. it. Right. And I think that um, this is these are all models of change um, that are, and I don't want to put them even in the same place, same category, right? Because I, I, I think of Daesh as a, uh, as a pathology, not even Al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda is a different level still. Absolutely. Agreed. That, that yep. goes wrong, whereas Daesh is a pathology that's born out of Al-Qaeda going wrong, if you will. Um, but these people think of um, violent, you see, all, all of these people have an imagination about uh, the nuts and bolts of how the world works. Hmm. Now, those imagine, that imagination is not known to us, right? So actually, if you read, for example, the, the manual that became the Daesh, if you will, manual, or Management of Savagery, yes. Uh, this is a manual written in 2003 and four by a young Al-Qaeda operative on the way to becoming Daesh. Anyway, so if you look at, they have a history of, a theory of world politics and how to make, uh, change, how to bring change. And it's very realistic, right? It's very realistic, meaning that um, ideo ideologies don't matter as much as, and in some ways it's more competent than what you find in 
um, the textbooks in, in the Muslim world, certainly. But it's also one that's unstudied. It's like one dude wrote this and this became, you know, this may be a result of, of, of some struggle, some, some conversations that are taking place in the barracks and whatnot. But this guy who probably had a bachelor's degree in, in agriculture is telling us how the world works, you know, because he's reading news. You don't have departments and scholars um, universities and madrasas and Ibn Khaldun and Ibn Taymiyyah and Al-Ghazali who are seriously uh, helping us understand and Huntington and Fukuyama are not being engaged. What you have is this guy with bachelors in agriculture um, and that becomes the model because it gets picked up the right moment and um, then it goes downhill from there. But all change happens this way, and that's the point I want to make. But basically, that neither top-down nor bottom-up nor violence only, all of these things are in fact part of historical change. Uh, and violence, just because it's violence, is not evil in itself, right? Because sometimes violence, the right moment that is principled and merciful and compassionate and thought out, and it creates the possibility of long-term peace. Absolutely. Uh, but the point is that these questions are not addressed, right? This one dude decides for the ummah what we're going to think about the caliphate. Um, and that's the problem when you don't pay attention to knowledge about uh, history and about yourself. The knowledge of history and knowledge of other Muslims' real uh, sensibilities, real ideas. That's those are those. Are, that's the kind of knowledge that you need to live with, and so change, in my view, is. In fact, this is a standard social science, social movement theory that typically there are three or four things that um, come together to make social movements succeed. There is um, political opportunity or cracks in uh, in political elites, whether it's global leader or or um, national elite. There is resource mobilization, meaning that, uh, for instance, in the Arab Spring, the uh, cell phones and Facebook and whatnot provided a certain a new resource of in, in instant connection that wasn't available before. It maybe wasn't necessary, but this became the means, the resources by which you could mobilize and create communities. The third is framing of the ideology and grievance. And because grievance is itself, just because you're down low doesn't mean you're going to rebel, you're going to engage in collective action, that you're going to challenge those in power. No, that in fact requires framing. Absolutely. And framing means right, that you decide what is wrong and who is responsible and how to act. And the Arab Spring, one of the reasons it succeeded, because this framing was compelling, it was, it was simple, it wasn't, it wasn't conspiracy theory. It identified problematic actors um, in a particular way and uh, unified people in the way that it framed the problem. Anybody could agree that there was too much corruption. The Salafis, the Christians in Egypt, the left and the right. Um, so my point now is that all of these things matter in bringing change. And <clears throat> you do not know, right? You cannot write a pamphlet about how this is going to pan out. You have 
So that's my answer to your earlier question of how I think this will happen. The answer is that you have to remain open to other uh, Muslim intellectuals, thinkers, social movements, people who are concerned with the same thing because you don't know. That's one. The second question um, that you asked, which, which, which I uh, deferred, is the question of how do I see this um, working out? Uh, how do you see this? How do you see such a the polity? caliphate functioning? Yeah. Right? Yeah, how does it function? And will it will it will it for it to in, in your in your thinking? Can right. it function in a world of nation states? Or would it have to smash this con concept of nation it, that it would have to essentially go against the nations that you can't actually okay. have a caliphate and nation state coexist? How do you see it happening, functioning? Yeah, so that's the question. Another question, and I have all your questions in mind that I'm not ignoring them, <laughs> which is that are we in the worst possible condition today? Uh, are Comparatively things... to history. Was that? Yeah, comparative. So the Ummah situation now, right. is it the worst comparatively right. to the past? Is it a fair comparison? Right. And so let me answer the second question, and then we're going to look at, if you will, the final question of how it might look like in the age of nation states. So is this really the worst that it has ever been? And the answer is, really, I can tell you many things today, very concretely, that show us quite the opposite, that we haven't been as good as we are for centuries as we are today. I'll tell you why. Um, today, let's just look at, you know, brute numbers. By the, in the beginning of 20th century, 1900s, the number of Muslims in the world, percentage of Muslims was, yeah. take a guess. Is it will probably be significantly, surprisingly less than what many would think. I don't know, seventy million. Right. So the percentage-wise, um, okay. a world population, it's ten to twelve percent. Okay. Today it is closer to twenty-five percent of the world. Okay. So we've doubled, roughly. Percentage. Yeah, we've doubled in percentage. Number. The actual yeah. absolute number is much greater because the world population has exploded, mm. right? So is that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, if we take the hadith of the Prophet where he said you will be many in number and the nations will gather around you, then the number becomes an irre irrelevant thing, no? Well, only if you... Surely, surely it's not, against the... That's not the, the only the, hadith to think about. The Prophet also said that this message will spread and enter every household Absolutely, and so on. he did. Yes, so did, yes. that's not the only. We should not get stuck only in one narrative. Yeah, right? of course. So is Islam it? But is surely, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah it's spreading. Yes, yes. And that's 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 all I want to say for now. Secondly, the um, availability of Islamic sciences, Islamic knowledge, our understanding of history in twentieth century, increasingly, because of. Uh, the activity of amazing scholars working in India and Egypt and, and Riyadh and elsewhere, uh, Morocco, Lebanon, editing works and producing high quality, critically edited works. 
And this is, of course, uh, my good friend Ahmed al-Shamsi in his recent book, uh, Rediscovering Islamic Classics, describes this, uh, this change. We are enormously, incomparably more uh, knowledgeable about uh, the great Islamic history and tradition than uh, Muslim intellectuals in the early 20th century, the 19th century, in 18th century, and 17th century. These people were reading a, hand, a kind of text or a number of texts about Islam that could fill my room here and that's it. Whereas today, uh, a library at Princeton, Harvard and whatnot, right? You could fill entire floors and have only a section of it. So what does that tell you? That, you know, that, that if you're looking at the at civilization and Islam, not only from, not simply from the perspective of executive power, but from its staying power about how it took the idea of Tawheed in the Quran and the Sunnah and it made it a, a universe, then you should say that this is, this is absolutely a great, another victory, right? The number of Muslims who are literate today that people who can actually read the Qur'an and the Hadith and memorize or ask scholars questions or are interested in learning about Islam or non-Arabs who are interested in learning about Arabic, the number is explosively greater than it was at that time. In the early 20th century, 19th century, and um, so, uh, and, and finally, um, Islam now is a global phenomenon as a result of globalization, but really starts with the two world wars that Muslim uh, armies and soldiers go everywhere and spread Islam. So in a sense, Islam is not a stranger in, in the West now. Islam is not a stranger in China now. Islam is not a stranger in Japan now. Islam is not a stranger in uh, South Africa now all these regions that were you know, un, un not reached by Islam in, um, in the earlier centuries, even as late um, as the 19th century. So in that sense, right, in many ways, uh, Islam has greater strength numerically in terms of its exposure and in terms of its own awareness, our own awareness of our tradition, in terms of now, there are many things that you could be depressed about, the rise of atheism in the Muslim world, and uh, the, the, you could talk about the crisis of authority in the Muslim world, but crisis of authority comes from the fact that more people are learning from different perspectives, and uh, rather than thinking this as, as potential for, for creative uh, synthesis, right, because people think that they already figured out the right answer to everything, they think that's a crisis of authority because nobody's listening to me. But that's a myopic worldview, right? That's really not how uh, a great civilization thrives. Finally, um, Muslim, uh, to some degree, human access to knowledge and human um, understanding of the world around us, the empirical understanding of the world, and of our own limitations is better today, right? That's a human, under, that's a human possession, but human, Muslims are increasingly part of it, champions of it, leaders of it in many fields, right? 
that had not been the case for before for, for a very long time. So um, today you have Muslim uh, experts, social scientists, Islamic studies, as well as social sciences and, and natural sciences, which means that um, the possibility of uh, Muslims thinking as Muslims and communicating with each other globally are greater than they have been in a very long time. And last but not least, our ability to communicate. You are sitting in London, aren't you? I am uh, Bedford, but yeah, Bedford, London. Okay. Yeah. Um, and the very fact that uh, you know many people that I talk to daily as other Muslims are from you know they're from all over the place, right? Uh, I know about. I didn't know Uyghur, and I'm I'm a historian. I didn't know that Uyghur history at all. I didn't know anything about it. I didn't know about much about Rohingya. <laughs> Growing up, I saw them even in Pakistan, but I didn't know much about them. But today, I do. Uh, I know history of Islam in Africa, in North Africa. Most of my friends are from the Middle East. Um, Muslims are interacting with each other, intermarrying, in. And and realizing the existence of each other at a level that has never happened before. Of course, because our numbers are greater now than they never were before. But this, so my point is that this idea that we have never been this bad um, is true in certain respects. But respects you, you have respects. Well, Muslims are more Muslims are dying. Of course, there are more Muslims uh, in, in numerically around now. And one of the, the the downsides of spreading all over the world is that you are now um, seen as a threat, and you're seen as a target populations, and you are vulnerable, right? So it is a result of the fact that Islam has succeeded in some respects that it is seen as a threat by Europe. Um, and now increasingly by China and India. So I think that the mechanisms by which Muslims could now unify are many more. The cultural, social unification requires communication, shared language, requires a public sphere, which did not exist before and does now. It didn't exist even in the Abbasid and Ottoman periods. Um, so I think that there are reasons for optimism. So that's the, the question about how, whether I see uh, Muslims as worst ever. I don't, in fact, I, I'm very optimistic. The second question of whether we can, how uh, such a state could function or such a entity could function um, in the age of nation states First of all, we have to dress down the nation state a little bit. What is a nation state? Nation state, the world of nation states that everybody repeats like a mantra, uh, it didn't come into existence until after the Second World War. So it's not something that had existed. People talk about the rise of it in 1648, Westphalia and whatnot. Give me a break. The world was made of empires until the Second World War. And then in the Cold War, it's just the mode of empire of imperial influence changed. It's the Cold War, uh, new, new ideals now because trade and other things took over. But 
uh, there were spheres of influence, so you could very much say that American empire would, you know, was, was, you know, uh, continue to exert such influence that nation states, even in this time, were always a, a, a questionable constru construct. And there is, in fact, scholars who say that. There are Stephen Krasner at Stanford University has an interesting book. I like the title because it sort of uh, lays out the, the, the point I want to make. It's called Sovereignty, uh, Organized Hypocrisy. And the idea that, that Stephen Krasner has is that, of course, you know, sovereignty, the idea that nations, their nation stays and they're sovereign, it's just a construct that we always consistently violate. And he, in fact, says there's no, nothing wrong with it. Just give up the hypocrisy. Not all states are equal. Never have been. Never will be. Mm. And so that's one. That nation-state is not a hundreds-of-year-old construct. It's not what brought modernity. It is not uh, synonymous with our existence. It is a construct that became... Uh, increasingly popular, even though even then questionable, after the Cold War. Um, and it came under attack already in the 90s. And because when you have to understand what nation state means to understand why many scholars have written about the end of nation state. In the 90s, people were writing about it because they saw globalization as the end of the nation state. Um, and to some degree, now we are living a reaction to that perceived end of the nation state because people want to go back to this. But the idea was that, you see, nation state ideally is a, is a territory where people and the ideology and the state, the government apparatus, are all in one abstraction. They're one thing. The state represents the territory and the people. Um, and it is sovereign. There is no other entity that uh, claims the uh, loyalty of these people. And so much so that these people ideally are able to, uh, to engage in total war against other such entities if need arises. That's the two, the lessons we learn from the two world wars. Now, nation state in that sense um, is an extremely uh, questionable construct. Right? It doesn't exist anymore because people no longer, their loyalty belongs to groups and peoples that are not in their own national boundaries. Um, and their decisions right, are made often by United Nations, IMF, or some trade groups that will affect fundamentally what people can do. Now there is environmental groups that are international that are pushing people. So there is such a thing as nation state as an administration. But when we imagine the world of nation states uh, and connect it to, the, uh, to this idea of sovereignty, this theo theological idea of sovereignty, that is uh, very, um, you could say under attack, you'd say it's rather mitigated because the nation state elite now have effectively become the military force for multinational corporations. Yeah. So they are enforcers for global trade. 
but they don't claim the loyalties of their people. Right? This was, has always been the case in the Middle East and, and elsewhere, with some exceptions, but now this is the case globally. Um, and this means that this idea of this nation state as, as being a reality that is unquestionable is just not true. Now, what does it mean for the caliphate? You see, if you mean by nation state and governments, uh, there's, first of all, there should be a clear difference we should make between state and government. Government is the apparatus of administration. State is this ideological entity. Absolutely. Who has the right to decide? Who has the right to rule? And governments are, by the way, historically, the majority of the majority of the world, civilized world, has lived under empires, not nation states, empires or smaller kingdoms, city states, or empires. Now, uh, in the empires, there was always this uh, difference between government as local, whereas the empire, which has the sovereignty, if you will, which has all the ideological paraphernalia. Um, that somewhere in a one major city like Istanbul, right, or Constantinople and whatnot. So in a sense, what we are talking about today, moving toward today, naturally, not only because we want as Muslims, but because it is good policy, in my view, in a number of ways, economically and politically, a combination of empire and nation state model uh, or administration, uh, basically local administration, local governments, yet that are, through our technology, uh, strongly connected. So there are some policies on which we need to act um, as, in a central way, in defense and for economy and movements of people and you know so on and so forth. Uh, and in some things, we need to pay attention to local, uh, uh, local decisions that are made by people. And, People could do so in very different ways. So in Tunisia, for example, you could choose your local, in my imagined caliphate, you could choose your um, leader democratically, because you know what? Tunisians like that. Um, or at least some Tunisians like that. So long as majority of Tunisians like that, good for them. They choose their leader that way. Yemen could choose a sheikh, tribal sheikh, that most people agree on. Right? Balochistan could have the leader of their jarga. So you don't have to break local, all these local forms of power and impose one in order to establish a caliphate. Right? And that's the mistake that often people make. That caliphate, they think of caliphate as a blank slate, that you have to erase people's history and culture and local forms of power and solve all of those problems before you can get there or while you're getting there, right? Somehow you will have this power to do so. And I don't see that as necessary. It may happen because again, you never can decide ahead of time how it will happen, but uh, you should theoretically in your discourse, in your understanding as Muslim intellectuals and activists and ulama who are thinking about this, our discourse should rise to this level where we see these theoretical possibilities, uh, study them, debate them, so that when they happen all around us, we have you know, appropriate reactions to them. If I were to just engage you in this kind of 
possible hypothetical possibility, uh, the one that you mentioned about Tunisians uh, electing their ruler or their their, their leader by uh, democratic elections, the Yemenis via via a tribal sheikh, and so forth. <coughs> How then do you hypothetically in this situation, just as a running thought, if it has ever passed your thoughts, would it come to issues of war, military cooperation, not just defence, but expansion, um, the source of governance, the source of laws, and these kind of things? Yes, so I think that there are... There, there should be great local autonomy. Now, there is always a difference in Islamic history between siyasa and schools of fiqh and madhahib. Siyasa has always been a more flexible model. Um, whereas, so a good example of that is Nizam al-Mulk, who was a Shafi'i endorsed Hanafis and Ash'aris else somewhere, plum places and Hanbalis in Baghdad and elsewhere. Kind of guy who knows that Siyasa is different from my personal beliefs. Right? A ruler, and this by the way is an old, this is why Imam al-Juwaini, who wrote this famous and very important work, Riyathul Umam Filtiyat al-Zulam, in the time of Nizam al-Mulk, uh, and this is, in my view, one of the best uh, uh, treatises, better than uh, Al-Mawardi's, which is more famous. Why is that? Why, why, why do you think that's better? Because the, the most popular commonly cited was right. Al-Hamal Sultania. Right. Now, Riyadh al-Umam is more imaginative and more critical about its resources, about its sources, and it's about, about its claims. So it wants to differentiate between what is definitive, what is, what is merely conjectural, so it criticizes al-Mawardi rahimahullah for that reason. But uh, I mean, Mawardi's book is absolutely amazing. It's just not what people often take, and take it to be. But Riyadh al-Umam has this extra element of great imagination of what happens if this isn't there, what happens if this isn't there. And there he talks about the, uh, that the rule of the Khalifa or, uh, or Imam should be to uphold aqidah only, not teach people their religion, and by uh, you know and 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 defend the lands of Islam, Hawdatul Islam or something. And right? the, the idea is, uh, or bayda as they always use the word, that there are these lands of Islam, and the role of the um, the ruler is to take care of the whole. And not go individually and teach people or or, engage, or persecute them, you know, do engage in inquisition about whether their aqidah is right. Or um, basically let the ulama and the teachers and the parents do what they do best. They decide what needs to be taught and you take care of the basics. Similarly, uh, the... Uh, the job of the Khalifa, or now when we should speak of, I, I believe, as a caliphal institution, is to ensure that all parts of the Muslim world, that they're in their mutual interaction, that there is fairness and justice, that if anyone is threatened from an outside source, uh, then all of the, the armies of the Muslim world are need, need to be mobilized, that all of them are implementing 
Sharia and Islam in the way that locally is decided. It may be that there are places which are not ready to apply all of the Sharia properly because that's an understanding of local ulama and local people. But once you see a model of successful um, and compassionate and working application uh, in one place, then it spreads because Muslims learn from each other. Of course. So there needs to be this sort of uh, practical understanding because, uh, and you, you need to learn from the uh, administrative strengths and mistakes of uh, the Ottoman Empire, most of all, because that's the most detailed knowledge and most uh, bureaucratically most sophisticated empire we have ever had. More yes. so even than the Mughals and the Safavids or uh, anything else have had. So that that it obviously needs to be a point of reference. You know the you know what you just described as the Khalifal uh, Institute's uh, overarching responsibility to ensure fairness and justice in the lands of Islam, uh, to see that uh, the Sharia is being implemented in those lands where it is able uh, to be implemented, and of course, to protect those lands from any external threats. Can you see such a responsibility or such an institute or polity fitting into this also very flexible and synergistic reality of what you said about Tunisia electing its ruler, the Yemenis having their tribal sheikh, and the Baluchis? Can you see a Khalifa on top of these regional and local leaders? So I think for that, you'll need good institutional design hmm. and um, for that you need really good scholars minds constitutional scholars who can learn from history i think one institutional design that is an example of everything working out but also a great genius is the american constitution which took really belligerent and different colonies uh, and uh, was able to put together a design that worked. Um, so I think that institutional design is necessary. And um, when and where that moment will come, I think that that's, that's for us to decide. But I think it's possible. It's very, in fact, I don't see any serious limitation um, other than our own imaginations and, and lack of courage. Bringing the podcast to a close, I really wanted to ask you whether you had read the following books. Uh, and, and, and if you have, what are your very brief thoughts on these books, as well as the authors? Um, and also give you, and just get your thoughts on three case studies of three groups. Um, have, you, what's, have you read uh, The Impossible State by Wal Halaq? Yes. Uh, and what's your general thoughts of... of of, of the book, its 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 arguments and its conclusion. I thought uh, I thought uh, saw that book as a challenge, as throwing down the gauntlet, rather than uh, claims that are precise and accurate. Meaning that many many observations in it can be challenged, but it's a passionate plea to think differently which is why I wrote a, a review of it in 2013, I believe, and I almost knew 100% that people are going to misread the text. And so instead of reviewing it, I summarized it and I 
pointed out these are the things that people are going to misread. And lo, of course, surely they, people, people did mis, misread precisely those things, such as... What, what was the biggest thing that was misread or misunderstood? Well, so the, some people saw Halak as advocating a secular state because he is uh, saying the impossibility of, right, the impossibility of a nation of Islamic state. He's not advocating a secular state, uh, certainly not a secular nation state. Other people were likely to read him as saying that uh, the, uh, you know, we need to go back to sort of uh, a pre-modern model and there is no Muslim contemporary understanding that fits uh, his model. And I felt that, in fact, he was drawing on uh, Muslims who were more deeply critical of Western civilization, but uh, in some ways his model was a you know more sophisticated version of what some of the earlier Islamists were saying. He simply he was very critical of Muslim brothers and others who want to Islamize the nation state, but um, when it comes to you know the question of the possibility of an Islamic order, right? So this book is not impossibility of Islamic order. This was impossibility of an Islamic nation state. Yes. People often misunderstood that. Uh, and then, of course, there were things that were questionable, such as the idea that Islamic, uh, in the past, Islamic tradition has been divorced from politics uh, or that politics has not meant uh, what it means today. Um, that modernity has so completely affected a, a, a rupture that our understanding of politics is entirely different. I don't agree with those parts. I think that in my own book, I, in 2012 book, I try to respond to this problem. And I argue that politics, political activity, collective action uh, has been in fact, necessary from the very beginning to make room for Islamic law and the Sharia that he talks about. So, uh, but I think it's a it's a very important book that changed the field, and as such, we should be grateful for it. Um, recalling the Caliphate by Sayyid. That's another great book I have read and I have taught it in my uh, classes, and. Um, I think that um, it is a courageous book that allows us to and asks us to um, expand our imagination. Um, and um, so, yeah, I have great respect for him, for, for uh, Professor Salman al-Sayed and his book. Um, this is an author who I believe actually wrote uh, a a brotherly and warm response to your 2019 piece, uh, Dr. Reza Pankhurst uh, and his book, The Inevitable Caliphate. Have you have read this book? Yes, I have read The Inevitable Caliphate. I wrote a review of it as well. Uh, and I know Dr. Reza Pankhurst, we have engaged in uh, conversations and uh, continue to be. Now obviously, in his, now, obviously, in case, he's coming from a very specific context someone who was a member of Hizb al-Tahrir, someone yes. who was jailed in Egypt. 
yeah. but as well as being an academic, you should, and you've wrote a review of this book as well, yeah? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, in terms of three political scenarios that have happened in our lifetime, uh, one that could be reflective of not all, but some of the groups that have made the caliphate or at least Islamic governance um, something central to their mission. Um, the Freedom and Justice Party's electoral victory in Egypt under Dr. Muhammad Morsi, rahimahullah, um, and its subsequent uh, failure or removal via military coup. What are your brief thoughts on this specific incident? So, I mean, I have lots of thoughts. It was a very deeply touching and deeply, uh, at first, deeply depressing um, turn of events. Um, we all had great hopes in Egypt, and Egypt broke our heart. Um, and so the past, uh, but that said, Freedom, Freedom and Justice Party, you know, we have plenty of criticisms for it. It was, uh, it was trying to imitate Turkey. Uh, and going into the neoliberal direction, um, partly perhaps because its leadership is uh, insular to the goings-on in the world, a kind of a sort of fact-phobia and knowledge-phobia that we see in other Islamists, is, uh, I think, is uh, really ails Egyptian Islamic uh, bro Muslim Brotherhood more than perhaps anyone else. And so they always, uh, they never fail to disappoint the expectations that they're going to do just the most, uh, uh, you know, uh, 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 out of sync thing. But uh, that said, of course, uh, um, you know, they, they never had a chance. Um, that was very clear. ISIS's claim of the re-establishment of the caliphate in June 2014, where certain borders between Syria and Iraq, certain nation states, uh, nation state borders from the time of Sykes-Picot were physically smashed uh, by ISIS and this claim by them. Your thoughts on that incident? Yeah, so I think that those borders uh, and Sykes. PICO agreement and the opposition to it, um, you know, those, the, the opposition to it and a closer history of what happened, right? That should be known to our youth, our high schoolers. And they should be seen as offense to our identity as Muslims, our self-respect, our honor. Um, and they aren't. Right, so I think that they should be uh, so unpopular that uh, no leader should uh, use nationalist rhetoric to bolster their claims. But what about ISIS's specific claim in June 2014 that they had reestablished the caliphate? So that, that was obviously completely ridiculous because um, the caliphate requires um, bay'ah of and care of um, and protection <laughs> protection of the ummah. Like yeah. you, are, you have to care for the majority of the ummah. 
uh, and you have to be accepted the caliphate by the majority in one way or another. Um, so the I ISIS solved that problem in the most nefarious, most wicked way possible by doing takfir of everyone who didn't join them. Yeah. Um, but uh, you know, so there was there was nothing to their claim that was credible because to be a caliph means first and foremost to protect the borders of the ummah, protect the the Muslims. You know, and who could they protect? Um, and of course, they couldn't even resolve their problems with Al Qaeda and Taliban. So that's a uh, even if you did not, if in, even if they're not bloodthirsty, young and stupid uh, murderers, you could still give them a chance. Well, if they were not that, you could say, okay, what went wrong with them? Mm -hmm. let, let, let's say they were better, uh, more compassionate people. Right. Mm. Um, what would still be wrong with them is that they could not work out differences with um, people very much in their own ranks. And if you cannot make a deal, if you cannot bring people to the table, um, then you're a non-starter in the game that uh, the long-term game that we have. Okay. Being from Pakistan yourself, or being of Pakistani origin. Uh, we know that at least in the 90s onwards, uh, there was a high level of concentration by Hizbut Tahrir in Pakistan, uh, and where to a point they did open up some communication or some dialogue with generals and brigadiers, um, some of which are currently in prison. Uh, what are your thoughts on Pakistan, not necessarily Hizbut Tahrir's activities in Pakistan? But I guess you can put it into that. But Pakistan, first and foremost, uh, as perhaps a potential prospect of a future birth of a caliphate. Right. So I think that that uh, Pakistan is great potential um, because Pakistan, uh, you know, it's a, it's a relatively young country that doesn't still have any coherence in terms of its various ethnic models various ethnic groupings and the only thing that can that can potentially bring them together is uh, is Islam um, but they have tried to nationalize Islam right that's what the army wants to do to use Islam but to do do it for its own purpose nationally of course all all nation states do precisely that uh, it so happened that Pakistan's army's uh, identity in history uh, and contemporary interests align with uh, Muslims' interests uh, in, in general often, not always. So uh, it doesn't have an anti-Islam uh, or anti-Islamism even strain that you see in other armies. Dr. Oymaranjum, uh, it was an absolute pleasure having you on. It was a great honor having you on. I know this conversation... Uh, could have easily gone on for easily a few more hours. And that's usually the case when Muslims discuss the caliphate and revival and stuff. And um, I pray to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala blesses you and preserves you uh, in this life and gives you the best in the next. And keeps I mean, you, and you too. Uh, keep, I mean, and keeps you as a source of benefit to Islam and Muslim and wider society. I mean. I mean, same for you. Jazakumullah khairan. Thank you very much Bar for having me. Barakallahu feek. Brothers and sisters, friends and foes out there, I hope you thoroughly enjoyed this podcast as much as I did. Um, 
you tend to know which podcast I really really like when it's me doing not much talking and doing a lot of listening uh, and that's motion you know that as well those podcasts where I'm listening a lot it's those ones which I can literally just sit here and just listen and I hope you guys benefit there's a lot of uh, ground covered with a lot more that could have been covered and inshallah we hope to have Dr. Anjum on in the future subscribe to the five pillars youtube channel please like this video share it leave a comment and until next time assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh blood brothers podcast five pillars production